Hey, everybody. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. I am still here. I've been gone for two weeks. It's good to be back with you. It's really good. I was out in Chicago for my last class in my doctoral program, and I thought about you guys and the fact that you've supported me greatly as I finish up this endeavor. I have no more courses now, and I have one year to finish my dissertation, and I look forward to telling you about what that'll be, because I'll be using it here in our context, and I'll need your help with it. It'll be cool. Thinking about Father's Day, today's Father's Day, and I have said to my wife um, on more than one occasion, if I could go back to those years before I was married, and God said, script it out, man. Tell me what you want in a wife. And I could just, I could just lay down all the characteristics, everything that would be the best, there is just no possible way that I could have created a better wife, one that is so profoundly takes me out of myself and makes, I never would have been able to craft a perfect wife. God knew better. And I think about the same with my children. I, if I could sit down and just draw up, if God said, okay, what do you want to see in your kids? What would be the best children? Whatever I would write probably would not have been the children that I have. And yet when I look at them, I get these children and they're not on my terms. They're on God's terms and they have changed me because of how radically different they are than what I would have supposed I needed the most. I hope the same is true for you fathers in the room. I hope that you see your children in that kind of light, a gift from God that he gives on his terms and he changes us and he wakes us up. It's very beautiful. I've missed being here with you, and I've missed our series in Mark. So I was here, in I wasn't preaching last Sunday, but I heard Andrew as he left us where he did, and we're going to pick it up in the same spot today. Uh, we're going to pick it up in this very controversial moment of Jesus' ministry and life. And that has everything to do with marriage and divorce. And that's a very hot-button issue still today. It was back then. We're going to go to the text. I doubt that it will be supremely unfamiliar to most of us. I think we'll recognize the language here. But because of that, I want to, I want to say something about what we're reading before we enter into it. I think it's important uh, for us to actually read this text well. What we're reading. I remember in youth groups I was often taught the Bible is God's love letter to you. We're not reading a love letter. I, I was taught that this is, this is God's instruction manual for you, teaches you how to live. We're not reading an instruction manual. I've been taught it's, it's truthful and factual about history. It's a history book. We're not reading a history book. We're not reading a collection of useful or inspiring information. This isn't an ancient anthology of cool nuggets, and we can sort of just ruminate on them, however. I think we often underestimate what somebody like Mark was trying to do as he penned the gospel according to his own vision, the gospel according to Mark. Mark wrote this story to do perhaps each of those things that I mentioned, but so much more than any one particular one of them. The gospel, I believe, is best understood as a guided cruise missile, if you will. And that baby's been rolling for 2,000 years, and God has this profound way through the Holy Spirit to drive that cruise missile straight into your heart and soul and blow it up. The gospel is something that shatters walls that we've created and blasts darkness out of this world. And it, and it hits us hard. So if the gospel isn't blowing you up, then you're probably not reading it well. And if the gospel is just supporting all of your preconceived truths, you're probably not reading it at all. The gospel shakes us at the deepest place of our existence. And we should expect that. And then when it does, we should not panic. 
Instead, we turn our face to God and to one another as we learn together and pursue the truth of this gospel. It's deeper than you think. There's more to it than meets the eye because it transforms. I want to read what Jesus said about marriage that draws the most interesting reaction from the disciples. Jesus is talking about discipleship so far, isn't he? He's been laying down, here's what it means to be a disciple of me. And then this odd text comes in. The same moment is recorded in Matthew chapter 19. And after Jesus lays down what he wants to say about marriage and divorce, the disciples have the most profound reaction. They say, what in the world are you talking about? If that's true, it would be better to never get married. Jesus must have said something pretty interesting, at least. What did he say? I want to read this text with you. The disciples listened to Jesus, their beloved friend, who they trusted with their lives. And he described marriage to them, and they said, well, if that's true, then why would any reasonable human being sign on to that? That's ridiculous. It, it says, Matthew 19, 10, the disciples said to him, if this is the case of a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. And that's in the imperative form. So exclamation point. It's better to not get married. Goodness, if that's true. What did Jesus say to them? Let's read it. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Previously, we're in Capernaum. We're kind of on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. If you guys remember, uh, when I was in Israel recently, I got to go to the first century synagogue and take my picture there. That's where Jesus was in that small uh, coastal town, if you will, where Peter's from. Jesus was there, and he was teaching about discipleship, and he laid down those really intense statements like, if you're going to use your arms and legs for things other than pursuing the kingdom of God, it's better to not have them. And we were like, what in the world? He was really intensifying the call to discipleship. But he leaves Capernaum, and now he's headed into Judea. So, verse 1, then Jesus left that place, and he went into the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan River. And again, the crowds gathered to him, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Jesus liked teaching. He taught them, verse 2, then some of the Pharisees came and to test him, not to learn from him, but to test him, they asked, hey, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered them, well, what did Moses command you? He chose that verb. What did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, he wrote this commandment for you because of your hard hearts. Now our English says hearts with an S. In the Greek, it's a collective singular. So he's saying because of your hard heart as a people, okay? Because of your hard heart as a people group, he gave you this. Verse 6, but contrasting, he says, opposed to that, from the beginning of creation, and now he quotes Genesis 2, he made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. And so, they are no longer two, but are one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, in the house again, the disciples asked him about this. They seem to always, I mean, this is shocking. They're confused. They're, oh, can you believe, I can't believe he said, yeah, he said that. Did he really? Do? Jesus, we have more questions for you. And they said, they asked him some more questions. And so Jesus answers them or he tells them, look, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, then she commits adultery. Now, right there you see a little bit of Mark's audience. 
You wouldn't even have to throw the last line on there because in the Jewish world, the woman couldn't divorce her husband. Mark is writing clearly to a Gentile audience as well in which that would have been more permissible, so he adds that in. In either direction, leaving your spouse in order to marry another one, he says, is adultery. It's significant. It's weighty. Because I know for a fact that there's nobody sitting in this entire room, not one human being here among us, who hasn't been affected significantly by divorce. I think I've told you a couple of times, last year in May, my parents divorced after 40 years. Divorce is very prominent and very real and very common, and it has affected us all directly or indirectly. So we tread very carefully and sensitively as we proceed, okay? I want to set up our modern sort of cultural dilemma before we continue, and I'd say this. Marriage is excruciatingly difficult. If you're young and considering marriage, you should write that, tattoo that somewhere on you. Okay? Marriage is excruciatingly difficult. You take two people who are seriously different, male and female. You think differently, you act differently, you have absolutely different desires, needs, wants. You're just different. And then you try to co-mingle flesh and soul and spirit into one being. There's no way this happens without tremendous grace and forgiveness and patience, and patience, and patience, and patience, and patience. It's a profound challenge, and there is really no way that it's ever going to happen without learning a lifestyle of grace. Not just offering grace when sins happen, but learning to live as grace. Learning to gospel with one another. If you're able to, over time, even though it is costly and it takes so much from you, you you give so much of yourself to make it happen, that could all sound like, like the disciples, geez, man, why would you even sign on? If you've been married in a healthy way for any period of time, you know that there is deep joy in it as well. But I think that when you pursue marriage for that, you'll never find it. Jesus throws marriage into the context of a discussion about discipleship on purpose. This means that marriages are often delicate relationships and they're as fragile and fluctuating as human passions. And so the question of divorce has been central since the very onset Obviously, even well before Jesus' time, it was a major question. We human beings can be awfully fickle. Now, up until the recent middle of the 20th century, you had such a church condemnation of marriage and then social norms in play where marriage was, or divorce was, was by and large, not an option. It's just, you just didn't do it. That's changed a lot today. I think it's, it's simply common. I was a, as a journalist one time, I wrote an article about a shop that opened up in downtown Portland, the divorce shop. Go down and get chocolates and caramels and lawyers and probably, I don't know, microbrews, whatever. It was a way to kind of go down and get all the things you need for a good, happy divorce. I remember going to the high mountains in Nepal visiting missionaries and we hiked deep, deep into the countryside and we're sitting in the shade of a tree and met some teenagers. Now this is, this is beyond access of a dirt bike. The trails are so rugged. You wouldn't be able to get a, a small dirt bike up there. So we're remote, remote, but they can still satellite in some TV and internet. And so these boys come up to us, and the first question after they established we were from the U.S., they said, are you guys married? And we said, yeah, actually we are. Cool, are you going to divorce your wives? And it was that fast and that assumed. What they gleaned from our culture is that this is just very, very common. 
Richard Hayes writes this. I like Richard Hayes a lot as an author. He said, the collapse of cultural strictures against divorce has left the church in serious need of a fresh theological and pastoral reflection about divorce and remarriage. The pain and complications of divorce cast their shadows in every congregation, yet the church often fails to address the issue forthrightly. In some churches, a divorce remains taboo and divorced persons are ostracized or left out. In other churches, however, Divorce is treated almost casually. Members are not in any serious way held to their marriage vows. Some in the church, I think those who see Christianity in therapeutic terms, if I do good things, God will make my life better. You know, he'll, make, he'll help me to be more fulfilled and find happiness. And from that mindset, we're starting to see teaching about the positive value of divorce and even the call to have divorce ceremonies liturgically oriented the same way as we have marriage ceremonies because it's just kind of part of life. Uh, here's one from the good Bishop John Shelby Spong. Right now, he's currently leading our brothers and sisters in the Episcopal Church. And he says this, without compromising its essential commitment to the ideal, faithful, monogamous marriage, the church needs to proclaim that divorce is sometimes the alternative, which gives hope for life. And that remaining in marriage is sometimes the alternative, which gives death. The fullness of life for each of God's creatures is the church's ultimate goal for human life. Notice what he's operating with. When a marriage serves that goal, it's the most beautiful and complete of human relationships. But when a marriage does not or cannot serve that goal, it becomes less than ultimate and may well prove less than eternal. And in such a case, the church needs to accept the reality and pain that separation and divorce bring and help to redeem and transform that reality and pain. He's trying hard to wrestle with the difficulty of our reality. And yet I would challenge the idea that the church's ultimate goal is to bring personal fulfillment to people. Pay close attention to that mindset. That is, by and large, how we think about marriage and, more importantly, about life with God. And that's where I want to go with this whole sermon today. We're talking about marriage but every time I'm talking about marriage as the union of two people, I want you to also be thinking about marriage as a picture of our union to God and union within the church. The parallels could not be more stark, especially where Jesus says what he does or how Mark locates it in the context of discipleship. There's a huge parallel. We believe that because God is good, his goal is to move us out of the sadness of dissatisfaction into the happiness of satisfaction. And so if there's something that is not satisfying us, God would not want that for us, obviously. He wants us, we believe, we, what he wants for us, his ultimate goal is for us to experience a happiness-shaped life. He would not want us to experience a cruciform or think cross-shaped life, the form of a cruci crucified. He would not want us to experience that, right? I mean, this is Jesus' job. He paid the price so that we don't have to. He paid the price so we could be comfortable and assured and happy and free and loving and built up and always, always encouraged and hopeful. That's why he paid the price. If Jesus had thought that we would need to suffer and die because of our sin, just because or just like he did, well, he probably would have said something like that, right? He would have said something like, if you want to follow me, you've got to bear your own cross. Hmm. Notice this sort of thinking, this idea that once it's not fulfilling and happy, it should be terminated is the same logic used often in abortion conversations. 
When the baby is a non-viable entity, it can, we can tell from different reasons and ways and tests that it won't be able to be fully functional in one way or the other. According to some ideal, it's best to just terminate it. Try again. The same logic applies to the way we often think of marriage. In that same piece that was written by Bishop Spong, he talks about a very specific couple that he had been pastoring. And he said, quote, they were growing in alienation from one another. Quote, an increasing inability to communicate with one another. Because the partners were taking, quote, radically different paths in life. And so the conclusion was, quote, there is no more life or potential for life in this relationship, so they chose to part ways as, quote, friends who respect and care for each other. I hate to admit that this kind of logic makes sense to me. I am so frog in the kettle with pop culture, our mainstream pop culture, which in my view is no different than Christian pop culture that I've become sort of warmed into this notion that it seems legitimate at first glance. Jesus' disciples would have certainly agreed, yeah, if it's not life-giving, if it's not fulfilling, if it's not building you up and encouraging you and lifting you up and making you happy, then yeah, you know, move on. And yet, Jesus is absolutely not on that page. Your personal fulfillment is not the goal of marriage, he says. But why? Does Jesus not want us to be happy? I mean, is that it? Come and suffer, suffer, suffer. It's going to be great. <laughs> you know, we kind of have to think through this. I want to return to our passage in Mark 10 and think it through a little bit more closely together. As I mentioned earlier, first, we have to remember that Mark is writing a story about the most profound moment in human history. Jesus breaking into the soul of this world and into the heart of humankind. The opening, if you remember, is God tore the heavens asunder. That's old prophetic language from Isaiah. There will come a day when God tears the skies open. Mark is signaling to us this is that moment. God rips the heavens open to enter into this world. So that's the story Mark is writing. He's not writing down all of the necessary facts and instructions related to divorce and remarriage. Quite conversely, we see Jesus showing us himself and his kingdom. And he shows it to us through odd riddles and parables and confusing images and words. So it's in the context of Jesus teaching about his kingdom in very confusing, terse, ambiguous ways that he drops this instruction on divorce and remarriage. What I'm saying is that has to condition the way that we read it. We can't say, well, this is all there is to divorce and remarriage, or, or marriage and divorce and remarriage. This is something that's related to that bigger, more complex topic. But what Jesus is doing here is waking us up to a reality about our heart and soul and his kingdom. So this means there cannot be, in our central Bible community, there's no place for arrogance or dogmatism when we, when we talk about ethical matters that come from this kind of text. We have to admit that we too are often confused, just like the disciples were often confused. And that doesn't mean that what Jesus says is not knowable, it is. But it means that we come to the table with this kind of discussion humbly, recognizing that we need to learn. We all consistently need to be learning. We will assume that Jesus is not the kind of person who ever fits neatly into all of our preconceived ideas and values, okay? He will shock us, he will break down our thinking, and he will overturn some of our deepest beliefs and practices. He blows us up. And this is precisely what he's doing in the opening of chapter 10. Verses two and four, these are the Pharisees, the religious elite. 
And they come to him and they say, hey, you know, Moses says we can get divorced if we want to. What do you say? Testing him, Mark tells us. They want to trap him. For Jesus to say something contradictory to what Moses had said would be like saying something opposite to what God had said, which is why Jesus plays on those verbs. What did Moses command you? Meaning, what did he require of you? And they say, well, he allowed us to. And there Jesus then is not violating Moses, is he? Jesus is not saying, Moses commanded that you should all be divorced, and I'm saying you shouldn't. He's saying, Moses allowed you to get divorced because you're hard-hearted, and I'm saying you shouldn't do that. Okay? So he's not contradicting Moses. Verses 5 and 9, I'll paraphrase. He says, Moses did say that. He did give you permission, and he said that not because it's a good thing, but because you are hard-hearted as a people group, because you do not trust God on this issue. God, on the other hand, long before Moses, from the beginning of creation, he made them male and female. Jesus quotes Genesis 2. He created marriage and said that when two people are joined together by him, by God, they are recreated into one flesh and should never be broken apart. This shocked them. This broke down their thinking. This overturned some of their deepest beliefs and practices that they had been rolling with for thousands of years. Why? Because, I think, like you and me, they saw marriage primarily as a happiness-formed entity rather than cruciform. Marriage was about satisfying who I already am, not about giving myself away to become someone new. Jesus appeals to the original creation to say marriage is about the union of male and female, period. Two very unlike beings. Totally impossible to join them together in any meaningful way, much less deep spiritual fiber of your existence way. It's totally impossible except for with God and his grace. I think that was the intention even before the fall. Even the good, perfect beings, male and female, to join them together is no small task. That's why God calls marriage that. So it's the, it's the union of a male and female. Real marriage, he says, is a permanent bond joined together by God. So Jesus totally ups the ante. They want to nitpick over rules, and Jesus is like, let's just step back to the original intent when God breathes existence out of non-existence, okay? What did the, the supreme creator want? Now, what happened to these guys? Why would the disciples, when Jesus says, this is good, it's permanent, don't break it up, this is what God wants, they say, man, if, that's, if it's permanent like that, why would we even ever want to be married? Why would they say that? Well, let's step into the first century for a moment. The first century Jewish world's divorce, divorce was common in this day, easily more common than what you and I experience. So always be careful about, you know, today, morally, things are morally worse than ever. It's like, maybe in some arenas, just keep reading history. We're okay in some areas. So the, a divorce was very common. Divorce was a burning question, writes William Barclay. It was a crux of rabbinic discussion. They were always debating it. And these religious leaders and rabbis and teachers, they asked Jesus the same thing that many people asked me when I was candidating to become the senior pastor here. Hey, Tertine, what's your position on divorce and remarriage? As though there's an all-encompassing truth that applies in every single case. And I never know what to do with that question because it's like, well... 
we got to kind of talk about where people are at in the case and so forth. But what's your position on this is what they're asking him. And they said in verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And they already knew the answer. It's a fake question, isn't it? Their goal was to see if Jesus agreed with what they already knew to be true. We might say what they wanted to be God's holy truth. What was that truth that they knew so well? Well, the truth in their mind, the truth of God starts with the absolute obvious biblical truth that women are lesser beings in this world. It's just obvious, right? You can see it. We know it. Bible says it. In Jewish law, the woman was regarded as a thing. You get a couple goats and chickens and a house. You might have a donkey and some fields. Get a woman. You know, it's just part of what you have and own. They had zero legal rights. She's at complete disposal to the male head of the household. This meant that a man could divorce his wife on almost any grounds. Kind of like returning a product when it doesn't produce what you expected. This, it's hard for me to talk about this stuff because it's pretty heartbreaking. Rabbinic teachings from the time, here's one, there's hundreds like this, but here's one. A woman may be divorced with or without her will, but man only with his will. You see, man, this is the context to which Jesus is talking about divorce. And it all goes back to De Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Suppose, here's what Deuteronomy 24 says, suppose a man enters into a marriage with a woman, but she does not please him because he finds something objectionable in her. And so he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. You and I both know. You know. What, what's the controversy going to be all over? Well, what counts as something objectionable, right? That's going to be the debating grounds on which we proceed. So what counts? Well, you had two major schools of thought in their day, one from Rabbi Shammai and one from Hillel. And Shammai was super strict, and he said something objectionable equals adultery. Boom. Period. He says she can be as evil as Jezebel, but if she's not committing adultery, there's no grounds for divorce. Hillel? <laughs> Hillel would have fit a lot better into our world today. And he's like, man, if she ruins supper, you can divorce her. If she argues so loudly that the neighbors can hear, you can divorce her. If she spins her yarn in the streets, you can divorce her. You know, that one makes a little more sense. You don't want your wife spinning yarn in the street. <laughs> if she speaks disrespectfully of her husband's relatives, you can divorce her. Or as Rabbi Akiba said, even if a man finds a woman who is prettier in his eyes, then his wife would have, his current wife would have something objectionable about her, and she could be rightfully divorced. Guess which of these two schools of thought was most popular in Jesus' day? It was Hillel, okay? The human condition, I think, is the same now as it was back then. They opted for his advice. The result was that divorce was extremely common. It was so bad in Jesus' time that women were very hesitant to even enter into a marriage because it offered two, two promises you're probably going to have children and you're probably going to get left alone with them. You know, young ladies were not like, oh, cool, yeah, that sounds fantastic. So they're actually bowing out left and right. You have a cultural scenario here where divorce has ravaged their world so badly, and yet it's just totally normal. Women are lesser. That's what the Bible says, doesn't it? Maybe. I thought it said they became one. It was so bad then, and yet I hear so many today saying the same thing. I used to run a, a young adults group at the last church where I was pastoring. Such a great hesitancy to be married because it brings, and in, in the idea is it will just always leave me 
broken and left alone. And we have so much evidence for that. Lord, have mercy on us all. Mark is showing us how Jesus fought hard for the lives of women by seeking to restore marriage to what God had intended it to be. For thousands of years, God's own people had used the scriptures to support evil, an evil way of thinking about women, an evil way of treating women as less than. This is the context Jesus is speaking into. And it's blowing up their mind because they're like, you're saying what? That there's an equalness here? No. That's like saying the sun rises in the west. I'd say, unfortunately, God's people have for a very, very long and strong history. We have a long history of yanking Bible passages out of their context to pridefully and ignorantly support the demeaning of women. And I want to say to you that this will not become a part of our community here at Central Bible Church. I cannot handle that. And we should not either. We cannot yank passages out of context and use them to support our preconceptions. We will never use the scriptures to demean, diminish, or devalue our ladies. They're as infinitely valuable as every man in this room. It is a profound reality that Jesus appeals to the creation narrative to blast the common practice of seeing two levels of humanity, men superior, women inferior. That's really the question of the Pharisees, isn't it? Hey, what's your position on women in miniature societies like the family? We are people of biblical truth. We just want to know if you agree with the truth that they are products that God creates for us for the satisfaction of others. You agree with that, right? The Bible says so. Do you believe in the Bible? That's, that's really what they're asking, isn't it? But Jesus goes back way before Moses to Genesis 2 and reminds him, God said that a man will leave his parents just like a woman will leave her parents and the two will cleave together and become one. One. One flesh. When two people become one, here's two people, they become one, There's, their superiority structures are no longer in play. We become one. If I take red and blue and blend them together, blue doesn't still stay above red. And blue can't say, hey, red, I don't like this shade of purple anymore, so I'm going to kick you out. It doesn't work that way. They've become one. I think Jesus' words are later picked up by Paul, and he echoes the same thought in his famous passage in Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There isn't slave or free. There isn't male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying there's no longer boys and girls that exist. They do. But they are no longer to be socially divided, just like rich and poor or slave and free man or eth ethnicity, Jew and Gentile. All that gets blasted by the gospel and we enter as one to Jesus. There is no hierarchy in the gospel, so your spouse is not a thing or a product that God gives you for the sake of pleasure and happiness. Not primarily, and then you can just send them away if so you find something objectionable about them. Don't forget that the context of this short passage, in this context, Jesus has been laying down the most intense language of entering into life with him and the high cost of following him. I am going to be crucified, he says, and the disciples are shocked. What? You will need to bear a cross as well, he says, and the disciples cannot believe that that would be necessary. Why? Last week, as Pastor Andrew preached, Jesus was laying down those crazy statements about it being better to cut off your arms or legs than to use them against God's will or use them against the furthering of his kingdom. 
Jesus has been blasting his disciples out of their self-seeking stupor. He's been challenging them to admit that they are deaf and blind to God because they love themselves and other things more. And they just want God to, to give them what they want more than him. He's been calling them into the way of true discipleship and embracing the hard demands that all true learners must embrace. I say this often. The root word of disciple is matesis, which is the Greek word for learner. To become a learner of the gospel and of the Savior is no small undertaking, and yet Jesus is with us, and we're with one another, so it's possible. So in the context of all of these things he's saying to them and warning them about and calling them to, he throws the marriage example right into the midst of it as a perfect picture of what God has always intended for marriage to be and a perfect picture of what he wants them to be in the broad world of being his people and disciples in the world. If you're coming to me, I think he's saying, if you're coming to me and you think that I'm a product who's here for your personal fulfillment and satisfaction, you're going to be perpetually bummed about church. It's just always going to disappoint you. But if you're coming to the community of my eternal people and you're willing to be cruciform about it, lay down your rights, lay down your opinions, lay down your desires, and use the spiritual giftings that God has placed in your heart and soul to build your brothers and sisters up, by golly, it's gonna hurt for a while and you'll be raised into a level of life you can't even fathom this side of heaven. It's an example of what he's saying overall to the Christian life. And that's why marriage is always put forth in the scriptures as a beautiful picture of God's boundness to his people his commitment that's unwavering, becoming one with God. We are becoming, as the Apostle Peter says later, partakers in his divine nature. The law of Deuteronomy 24.1 offers, at least to men, an easy escape from the hard demands of marriage, writes Hayes. But Jesus calls his followers to live instead in a faithful response to the original will of God. And Jesus calls you and I to such a reality, not because it will be the easiest or most fulfilling and happy experience for us. Instead, he calls us to this because it's the essence of a cross-shaped life. And cross-shaped lives are the only lives that raise up after death. Cruciform lives resurrect the happiness-shaped life dies forever. The cross-shaped life dies once and is raised up by Jesus to live forever. So he's not just asking you to suffer. He's not just saying, hey, give up all of your rights and opinions and pleasures, period. That's the end. He's saying you do this because what you think you need, you don't even really know the deepest lusts and longings of your being, you think will bring you all of the wonderful, glorious riches of life, and if only you could have them, just pursue it. And he says, those thoughts are deceitful. Trust me. Why do I trust you? Trust me, I have to go to the cross. You wouldn't have to die, you're just gonna win. He says, trust me, I know what life is about. I have not yet taken on sin into my life. I haven't sinned. I'm bound with the Father. I know the pure truth, and so much of it you guys think is true, but it's not. Trust me. Cross-shaped is what I mean by cruciform. That's a word that's growing more and more common today. We live lives with the wisdom and the attitude that we see in Jesus as he sacrifices his rights, his happiness, his ease and his comfort. All of those things, Philippians 2 says, were things he had the right to grasp onto as God on high. And he lets them out and he kenosises, he, he pours himself out for us. 
His fulfillment does not come through what mankind can offer him. His fulfillment, he knows, only comes from the Father, and he is inviting us to that. Marriage was always meant to be cruciform, even, I think, before the fall. The exceedingly difficult union of two unlike beings, male and female, into one. It's impossible without the grace and forgiveness and the ways of God. Marriage was never given to us for the sole purpose of feeling warm emotions or being happy. In many ways, as I said at the beginning, marriage is one of the most difficult endeavors in the human experience. And so, as these people try to trap Jesus to violate the law and the will of God, Jesus turns it right back over on their heads and he says, since Deuteronomy 24.1, you guys have been missing the point. That's hard for them. They have a good proof text. And Jesus says, yeah, you pulled it out of context, though. You should have kind of read it in the whole narrative. God said, go ahead and do that because you're hard-hearted and you don't trust him and you lack faith and you're sinful. <laughs> that, that wasn't saying, go ahead and do that because it's good for you. You and I do not have to make that same mistake. We can see marriage not as God's way to satisfy us, but as one powerful way that God changes us. The same is exactly true for discipleship, and that's the context of Mark overall. That's why he includes it here. Learning to belong to one another in a cruciform way. Learning to let go of our rights and our need to be fulfilled by other people. And instead saying, I am fulfilled in you, God. Everybody thinks I'm stupid, but you don't. I get rejected and betrayed and hurt, but you don't do those things to me. My fulfillment is in you, which gives me the patience, 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 patience that I need to live in community. You think it's hard to join two people, male and female, into oneness? What about a hundred people or two hundred people who come from Democratic and Republican backgrounds, who come from Tennessee and Texas and Alaska, who come from all over the world in different backgrounds, different proof texts, have been taught in different ways, and God says, join together and become one in a way where there is no longer slave or free man, rich or poor, male, female, all those social stratifications evaporate in your oneness with Jesus. It is so difficult. For this reason, human beings must leave their wisdom of the world and the ways of the world to cleave to God and his people. Couldn't we even see that same thing in our church relationships with one another. We leave the pursuits of this world. Even simple things, sleeping in, seeking leisure and comfort all the time, being picky and particular about all of our opinions and preferences. We let those things go so that we can be available to be with one another, to bind ourselves to one another to give of ourselves to one another. This is how marriage becomes so symbolic in picturing the nature of our union with God. There's nothing easy about it. Rewarding, oh my goodness, yes it is. Rewarding to the nth degree. Easy? Not so much. This world hurts and breaks us within. And we are overwhelmed by the weight of our sin. And in that moment, the world pleads with us to find some relief by just getting what you want. But Jesus is calling. Jesus is calling from outside of that darkness. Oh, come to the altar, he says. Come and lay your life down. Come to the end of yourself. And turn your face to God. Turn away from the mindsets of markets 
and malls. Turn away from the pursuit of self. And in your marriages and in your church lives, become cross-shaped, cruciform. Oh, come to the altar. Pray with me. Father, in the deep place of our soul, if there's something scary lingering, I'm so much more excited about reading your text and having it be nothing more than cool information to chit-chat about over coffee or tea, and then carry about my life as per usual trying to glean for myself from this world the things I deem most important. You know me, God, and know I've spent a lot of my life doing that and saw where it took me. You look down upon us as men and women, some of us married, some of us divorced, some of us thinking about getting married, some of us thinking about getting divorced. You look down on us and you see how our hearts long for things that are lesser loves. You see how we chase things that hurt us in the end. I pray, Father, that through your spirit you would make your call ever more present and loud. Help us to catch your vision of a beautiful kingdom. Help us to see how you thought sacrificing everything you could have possibly gained and God, Jesus, you could have gained everything for yourself easily. And yet you thought that it was worth it to just let it go so that we could step into an eternal kingdom with you. Help us to see it. As we fathers fight with our wives, as we men fight with our women, would you through your spirit convict us and help us to not overpower or see them as lessers to see them as eternal, created miracles that you made. And Father, with the ladies, with the women, with the moms and with the mothers, with the wives, would you help them to see their husbands the way you do? Through your spirit to convict them of pride, to convict them of the things that would distort their image of their husband and help them to be sacrificially loving them as well. Help men and women in this community to treat one another like that. And help us to all treat each other that way. Help our lives to become cruciform so that we can be with you, Jesus, the one who taught us what a cross-shaped life looks like. We love you and we do trust you. Amen.